President Trump is pondering whether to sign the new border security bill, which lawmakers are touting as a fair compromise between evil Republicans who want to heartlessly enforce immigration law and generous Democrats who want to compassionately destroy the country in the name of strengthening their grasp on power. Trump had originally asked for $5.7 billion to fund his promised border wall, enough money to build a barrier from Texas all the way to another part of Texas about five miles away. Instead, the bill offers only about $1.4 billion, which will only pay for a single fence post, since Democrats insist the fence post must be cushioned with velvet so that weary illegal immigrants can rest against it while they reload. Vicious Jew-hating lunatic and Democrat Congresswoman Ilhan Omar and dishonest communist knucklehead and Democrat Congresswoman Alexandria Occasional-Cortex have both called for defunding immigration and customs enforcement in order to ensure the free flow of crime across national borders. But the bill does give some support to ICE agents by promising Democrats will stop calling them nasty names and will just quietly go about the business of undermining their ability to do their jobs. Other provisions of the compromise bill include funding an interstate El Chapo Highway. This will ensure that those escaping oppression in Central America who want to build a new life here with the millions of dollars in drug money they have hidden in the walls of their panel trucks will be able to drive directly to the homes they have acquired from owners who've mysteriously disappeared. Although the bill gives Trump none of what he wanted, observers say the president will sign it because he heard that's what you do with bills on an old episode of Schoolhouse Rock. The president continues to insist that Mexico will pay for the wall by sending us thousands of illegal workers we can hire for less than minimum wage, thus saving us money that can be used to build the wall. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. I feel hunky-dunky, life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky dunky doo Ship shaped, tipsy topsy, the world is a pity zing. It's a wonderful day, hurrah, hooray! It makes me want to sing. Oh, hurrah, hooray! Oh, hooray, hurrah! Happy Valentine's Day! It's a day for all you lovers out there to get together and Act out your fantasies of bathing in olive oil while caressing a rubber chicken and wearing a bus jay and high heel shoes. And maybe that's just my fantasy. I thought it might be universal. But this is a time of fantasy all around. Yesterday, we talked about fiction and how fiction is meant to tell the truth about the world. Today, we'll talk about fantasy, which only tells the truth about the person who is having the fantasy. Current fantasies in the media include the all-consuming evil of Donald Trump, the realism, realism of the Green New Deal, the idea that intersectional racism is going to cure other kinds of racism, and one big fantasy on the right, too, the idea that Donald Trump is going to get anything substantial for his wall from the House Democrats. The problem with dealing with the world through fantasy is that reality will just keep on unfolding without us. Let's talk about 23andMe. It is a just an incredibly amount, incredible amount of fun. It is obviously one of those services that looks through your DNA and tells you uh, lots of interesting stuff about yourself. You can you just spit in one of those vials. It's very cool. It really is a lot of fun. And it can, uh, with more than 125 genetic reports, you can gain insights about your health. Uh, you can commit to a healthier you inspired by your genes. With 23andMe Health and Ancestry Service, you get more than 125 genetic reports. You get a for instance, a deep sleep report. If you've always suspected that you feel need more sleep than other people, or you feel more sleepy after missing out on a night's sleep, you might not be imagining things. It might be something real. I personally found I was related to Thor. That's not a, maybe it's just the actor who plays Thor. I'm not sure. Uh, you find out a lot of other things. A 23andMe health 
An Ancestry Kit is a perfect gift for Valentine's Day. Buy your kit today at 23andMe.com slash Clavin. That's the number, 23andMe.com slash Clavin. Again, that's 23andMe.com slash Clavin. You will learn a lot, like, for instance, how to spell Clavin, which is K-L-A-V. A-N. So I have to I have to start with this from Salon.com, which is it may not be the most important news of the day, but it's certainly my favorite article anywhere, possibly for the year. I know it's only it's only February, but still. And you have to understand when you listen, this is what liberals, by whom I mean like everybody kind of left of center, this is what they listen to all day long. And they laugh at it too. A lot of them laugh at it too. But I think it actually informs their worldview. You cannot listen to this stuff all the time without it's getting into your head. So this is an article for Valentine's Day from Salon.com. It's called, Has Trump Wrecked Our Sex Life? Post-Trump Sex Disorder is Real, says Sex Therapist. This is by Chauncey DeVega, a staff writer. And the subhead, my favorite subhead maybe ever, Big Mean Sexy Daddy. So, so Lon turns to Dr. Susan Block for answers to questions you didn't want to ask. Donald Trump has made America's mental health crisis much worse. Beginning with his presidential campaign and through to his third year as president, the United States has experienced an increase in anxiety, suicide, and depression, and other mental health problems. This is really interesting, by the way. That's just untrue. I mean, for 20 years, for two decades, suicide has been rising in this country, mental health disorders. It's hard to tell with mental health disorders because they keep redefining them downward so that you start with, you know, Mental illness starts out as, oh, I hear uh, people from Venus speaking through my tooth fillings, and it ends up as like, I sometimes I can't sleep too well at night, and that gets into the DSM book, and that becomes a mental disorder. So it's very hard to tell about that. But suicide, which is a good um, indicator of where things are going, has been rising for 20 years. The entire premise of the article is ridiculous. Says Now, the president of the United States is also a role model. This, too, is only true on the left. Nobody on the right thinks of the president of the United States as a role model. Not this one, not anyone. Uh, his or her behavior influences the public and is documented by James Gilligan in his book, Why Some Politicians Are More Dangerous Than Others. Trump's assault on the country's mental health is part of a much larger pattern. Okay, so... Donald Trump's negative impact on mental health extends to the intimate sexual lives of many people as well. What is post-traumatic Trump disorder? How does Donald Trump's misogyny and other unhealthy behaviors do this? This guy is actually thinking about this. Towards women reflect deeper systemic cultural problems in America around gender, sex, and intimacy. Now, in an effort to answer these questions, I recently spoke, he says, with Dr. Susan Block, Dr. Susie is the founder and director of the Dr. Susan Block Institute for the Erotic Arts and Sciences. Block is perhaps the most well is perhaps most well known for HBO TV special Radio Sex TV and appearances on HBO series such as Real Sex and Cat House. Now, I happen to have seen both shows. I don't know why, but I have. I mean, I watch a lot of stuff. I have seen both Real Sex and Cat House, and they Cat House is an actual evil show. This guy just died. He, he ran. He was the guy who ran this uh, whorehouse in Nevada, right? So it's a legal, illegal place, a legal house of prostitution. And the show, I used to just, I, I, I think I've seen it twice. It was evil. It was an actual evil show. It was a show that romanticized and normalized prostitution. I, I researched a lot of prostitution, Nevada prostitution, for uh, one of my novels, Damnation Street. I, I went up there. I visited a brothel. I talked to people there. 
And it's terrible, you know, I mean, like not only uh, do these women, they women work for these places that are supposed to be protected, but they all have pimps and their pimps treat them just the way you think pimps treat them very badly. Uh, and obviously prostitution, I think, is a form of it arises out of a form of mental illness in this show. This cat house was it was disgusting. It just kind of made you feel like, oh, it was so much fun. It was an advertisement for this for this brothel, you know, uh, real sex also treats sex like a kind of function of two pieces of meat coming together. It's just a, a you know, it's it's the kind of thing you would expect from TV, from cable TV, but, it, but it's ugly. So that's who they're talking to. So here's the Q&A. How has the age of Trump impacted the American people's collective mental health and also their intimate lives? So you're listening to a woman who is selling this vision, this amoral, inhuman vision of sexuality. That's their expert at salon.com. And she says, it's had a big impact. For some people, Trump's campaign and presidency has created a type of post-Trump uh, sex disorder. Trump has created feelings. <laughs> I'm sorry. Feelings of fear, loathing, and nausea. People just don't want to have sex because Donald Trump is president. This would make I haven't noticed this, but maybe I'm just missing something. This would mainly be seen with women who are just appalled at how creepy Trump is. Maybe they shouldn't have Trump sex with Donald Trump. He takes what is often a positive male attribute of confidence and pushes it way over the line into rape-like and rape-entitled kind of arrogance. Uh, they don't really like to talk. The news is full of stories about bad sex, she goes on to say. So... So she goes on, she says, yes, Donald Trump is a turnoff for many people, but for some people, and here's the crux of the biscuit, folks, for some people, they are turned on and titillated by Donald Trump. They are not suffering from post-Trump sexual disorder. Sex does not always turn us on the way we think it ought to. A lot of people are attracted to bad boys. I emphasize people because it is both men and women who are aroused and attracted to and titillated by Donald Trump. I guess Trump was right when he said, when you're a celebrity, they'll let you grab you. There is a definitely, there's definitely a homoerotic attraction for Trump being experienced by his usually very homophobic male supporters. I, you know, I wonder when the people say these things, nobody ever says to them, could you present your evidence, please? How many people have you interviewed? What surveys have you looked at? What surveys, what studies have you done? Both men and women really do find Trump to be an appealing bad boy and evil daddy who's really hot. Evil is fascinating. As you said previously, Donald Trump is a cult leader and Charles Manson-like figure. People are just, Anyway, I'd lead with this because I think it's important when you look at the news that this is what is actually inside these people's head. This is, this is real. I know that a lot of them are laughing it off or just saying this, but it actually is this idea that somehow, first of all, it talks about, it tells you about how how much the left identifies with the government, that you would let what the president of the United States is like affect your sex life, your life with your, uh, assuming you have a partner and you're not going to the cat house in HBO, you know, that you would let Donald Trump say, honey, not tonight, Donald Trump. You know, not tonight, I have a president. Not, not tonight, Donald Trump is just too mean for me to make love to you. I'm sorry, I can't do it. Or, or you know, hey, did you see that Rape like Charles Manson president. Come here, baby. <laughs> I just want to say that when you're listening to the news, these are the people you're listening to. Protolus, let me tell you, if you have never had plantar fasciitis, let me tell you, do not get it. I had it. Uh, it kind of lingers. It's not like you ever quite get rid of it. It is one of the most painful experiences you can have. 
it is awful. And one of the things you do to treat it is you wear insoles. And in fact, this is really true, the way you stand and the way your feet are adjusted have big effects on your back and your uh, your whole carriage and everything, body muscle tightness, other issues, uh, your knees, your hips. Uh, all of that is affected by the way you stand. And protolis are these uh, really, really... Uh, creative and advanced insoles that you put in your shoes. I wear them in my hiking boots. I wear them in my sneakers. I wear them whenever I'm doing any kind of extensive walking. They are really comfortable. They really make you feel better all around. It's, they've got over a million happy customers and a 97% success rate solving the problems that people have with their feet. This week only, my listeners can save 30 bucks on every pair of Protolus insoles at P-R-O-T-A-L-U-S dot com. Protolus .com. Enter WIRE30, the word WIRE and the uh, number 30, 30, at checkout. That's one of the lowest prices of the year exclusively for our loyal listeners. Plus, shipping is free. And if you buy two or more pair, they will upgrade you to free expedited shipping. Give Protolus insoles to try... A try and experience the difference. More comfort, more energy, more life. They have a 90-day money-back hassle-free guarantee, so you have nothing to lose except the pain. That's at protolus.com, P-R-O-T-A-L-U-S.com, promo code WIRE30 to save 30 bucks on every pair of Protolus insoles. Uh, they really do work. They're just really comfortable and nice. So Donald Trump is so evil that he uh, is affecting, I mean, it's just not going to be Valentine's Day this year. Valentine's Day is canceled because Donald Trump is president. This leads to this story that they are not covering. They're talking about fantasies, the fantasy that there was some kind of Russian collusion. Andrew McCabe has now given, I, you know, they're always saying this is a bombshell. That's a bombshell. This is a bombshell. He was going to be on 60 Minutes this week. And this is the guy, right, who replaced James Comey as head of the FBI and then himself was kicked out uh, and has been uh, charged with all kinds of things, you know, all kinds of untruths. He says that after... Trump fired James Comey, he went back and started the Russia investigation. This is cut number five. I was speaking to the man who had just run for the presidency and, and, and won the election for the presidency and who might have done so with the aid of the government of Russia, our most formidable adversary on the world stage. And that was something that troubled me greatly. How long was it after that that you decided to start the obstruction of justice and counterintelligence investigations involving the president? I think the next day I met with the team investigating the Russia cases and uh, I asked the team to go back and conduct an assessment to determine where are we with these efforts and what steps do we need to take going forward. I was very concerned that I was able to put the Russia case on absolutely solid ground in an indelible fashion that were I removed quickly or reassigned or fired, that the case could not be closed or uh, vanish in the night without a trace. I wanted to make sure that our case was on solid ground and if somebody came in behind me and closed it and tried to walk away from it, they would not be able to do that without creating a record of why they'd made that decision. You wanted a documentary record. That's right. That those investigations had begun because you feared that they would be made to go away. That's exactly right. If I ran the world, Two cops would have come in and arrested McCabe on that on the strength of that confession. They would have kicked open the door, picked him up under his arm, carried him out, put him in jail on the strength of that confession. And he just confessed to violating every principle of American governance. Everyone. I mean, it's an amazing thing. 
first, the idea that Trump was in line somehow with Russia was based on the idea, on the fact that they didn't like Trump's policy, that he kept saying, I think it would be a good thing if I were friendly with Putin. I think it would be a good thing. Obama said the same thing. George W. Bush said the same thing. I, I said at the time, I said here at the time, I don't think that that is going to be possible because I think Putin is a gangster, but it's certainly not criminal. What he is saying, he's, he disagreed. He disagreed with Donald Trump's policy and he felt that that was enough uh, for the FBI to take action. Then it is the fact that James Comey was fired. Now you have to remember, this he was talking about obstruction of justice. That's what he said, uh, that's what he's talking to Scott Pelley about there, that he was investigating him for obstruction of justice. Obstruction of justice has to be something you do through crime. The thing you do to obstruct justice has to be criminal in and of itself. Donald Trump, James Comey works at the pleasure of Donald Trump. Donald Trump could have fired him because he did not like his tie. Don't like the way you tie your shoes, James, get out. That would have been, that would not have been obstruction of justice, even if in his secret fantasies, he was getting rid of him to obstruct the, uh, to obstruct the investigation. It is, this is an amazing confession. This actually is a bombshell to show you how dirty these guys are. And the fact that CBS is reporting this and they were kind of talking about it as if it were somehow viable, as if it were somehow all right. And then he goes on to say that he actually wanted, got to get, what was considering getting together with people, that the DOJ, in fact, was considering getting together with people, uh, with Trump's cabinet to dump Trump on the basis that he was unfit to serve. Here it is. There were meetings at the Justice Department in which it was discussed whether the vice president and a majority of the cabinet could be brought together to remove the president of the United States under the 25th Amendment. That there was a discussion underway about removing the president of the United States. There, they were counting noses. They were not, not asking cabinet members whether they would vote for or against removing the president, but they were speculating this person would be with us, that person would not be, and they were counting noses in that effort. And this was not perceived to be a joke? This was not perceived to be a joke. Mm -hmm. It was also uh, said uh, at, at a previous time that the Deputy Attorney General, Rod Rosenstein, offered to wear a wire mm -hmm. into the White House to record potentially incriminating conversations with the President. A statement was released after that 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 was never serious, it was sarcastic, etc. McCabe in our interview says no. It came up more than once and it was so serious that he took it to the lawyers at the FBI to discuss it. Rod Rosenstein, I mean, this is amazing stuff. This is, this is fantasy. This is guys living, they're so surrounded by people who agree with them. They're so surrounded by the Obama administration, which is telling them that they are the good guys and the other guys are the bad guys, as opposed to they're the Democrats and the other guys are the Republicans, that they really thought this was a valid thing to do. Rod Rosenstein has just sent out a, a statement saying, as to the specific portions of this interview provided to the Department of Justice by 60 minutes in advance, the Deputy Attorney General, that's Rosenstein, again, rejects Mr. McCabe's recitation of events as inaccurate and factually incorrect. The Deputy Attorney General never authorized any recording that Mr. McCabe references. As the Deputy Attorney General previously has stated, based on his personal dealings with the President, there is no basis to invoke the 25th Amendment, nor was the DAG in, any, in a position to consider invoking the 25th Amendment. Finally, the Deputy Attorney General 
never spoke to Mr. Comey about appointing a special counsel. The deputy attorney general, in fact, appointed special counsel Mueller and directed that Mr. McKay be removed from any participation in that investigation. Subsequent to this removal, DOJ's inspector general found that Mr. McKay did not tell the truth to federal authorities on multiple occasions, leading to his termination from the FBI. So somebody Somebody is lying. Somebody is lying. And that's and and listen, this is the scandal. There is no Russian collusion. The Russian collusion is a fantasy. This is the scandal. And this is the thing that's not being covered. And it's a disaster. I mean, it is a disaster for journalism. As I've said repeatedly, I, I don't really have a problem with the way journalists cover Donald Trump. I have a problem with the way they cover Donald Trump after the way they covered Barack Obama. When you cover one guy as if he's Jesus and the other guy as if he's Satan, when they're just a pair of politicians, both of them with flaws, both of them doing things that the other side is not going to like, you have given up your uh, your worthiness of our trust. You have sold your worthiness to our trust. The fact that this is not the story, that this scandal is not the story, that they have wasted our time with this Trump-Russia collusion thing instead of this which is everything, which is really the abuse that went on and really a a significant tell of what the Obama administration was like and how Obama turned our national government into a Democrat machine. That to me is just amazing. And I think journalism may, American journalism may never recover from it, which by which I mean that it's going to have to be reformed. This is, you cannot go on. You cannot go on in a free nation with a press that simply will not report the news it doesn't like, you know? And, and, this, and listen, this is true of the Green New Deal, right? The Green New Deal comes out, which is essentially saying, oh, the weather is so bad, we need socialism. I mean, <laughs> that's the Green New Deal. Uh, you know, it's kind of warm, let's have socialism. It's kind of warm, let's give up our freedoms. It's so, you know, the climate's a little changing. Let's, let's give up all our freedoms. Th- that's what it is. They bring out that FAQ, that uh, position paper that Alexandria Occasional Cortex puts out. People make fun of it because it's about cows passing gas and getting rid of all air travel and they're going to replace air, you know, airplanes with uh, with fast trains and all this stuff. All this nonsense. They're going to give a job to people who are unwilling to work. Even people who are unwilling to work will be able to have a, make a living wage. <laughs> you don't have to work at all. It's just it's just this kind of ranting, this kind of stupid ranting from this empty headed woman. I mean, she is just a bubblehead. Suddenly, this thing disappears. The New York Times actually runs the Republican pounce, the Republicans pounce headline. The problem is not the document. The problem is that the Republicans are picking on it. And then the whole thing disappears. And Tom Cotton was on Hugh Hewitt's show and just said, this is like, it it is Stalin-esque the way the press is behaving. This is a classic example of a of a gaffe being when you say what you really mean. I understand the Democrats that proposed this immediately tried to retract that white paper that went along with their resolution. And too many people in the media have been complicit in the Stalin-like or 1984 technique of disappearing it, sending it down the memory hole. But this is where their heart lies. Uh, they believe that Americans driving around in trucks on farms or commuting from the suburbs where they can have a decent home into the city to get a job to work uh, are a fundamental threat uh, to the world. And they have to have the power and the control of those Americans' lives to implement their radical vision for humanity. That's See, that is the key because, you know, Joe Manchin was on... Um, I think it's CNN. I'm not sure. He, he was on, and he's from West Virginia, right? So he's got a problem. Yeah, so CNN with Chris Cuomo. He, he's got a problem because it's a big Trump state, and it's a big coal state. So he's looking at this thing going like, oh, good, you know, bankrupt my state. That's just what I need. That's how I'm, I'm going to run on that. I'm going to get win re-election on that. 
And, and listen to what he says about the Green New Deal. The Green New Deal was a dream. It's not a deal. It's a dream. And that's fine. People should have dreams. In the perfect world, what they would like to see. I got to work with the realities and I got to work the practical, what I have in front of me. I got to make sure our country has affordable, dependable, reliable energy 24 7. But you can't just be a denier and say, well, I'm not going to use coal, I'm not going to use natural gas, I'm not going to use oil. And you have to understand also the climate. When we talk about global climate, Chris, it's the globe. It's not North American climate, it's not the United States climate, it's the globe. How do we bring on China and India and everybody else who are great uses? of carbon right now and polluters of carbon to be carbon free also by using technology. You know, he says it's a dream, but what is the dream? What is the dream? Is the dream, you know, that the weather's going to be perfect, that there's not going to be any. Let's think about this for a minute, because sometimes, you know, people say, oh, the ends don't justify the means. But my question is always, what's the ends? Because sometimes the ends justify the means. But what is the end here? What are they looking for? There's a piece in the New York Times, a former newspaper, on Knucklehead Row. Knucklehead Row, where the, the stupidest people who can actually write go to express their opinions. So let's take a trip to the New York Times and Knucklehead Row. So, first of all, the, the, the piece is called, it's by Jedediah Britton Purdy, uh, and the Green New Deal is what realistic environmental policy looks like. And it has this picture. Do we have the picture from this? It's, yeah, there it is. It's, it's people wearing T-shirts that says, I have a right to a good job and a livable future. Somebody who was wearing that T-shirt didn't have a father or didn't have a very good father. Someone to tell him, you know what? The world doesn't owe you a living. The world does not owe you a living. You go out and make the living because otherwise you're living off people who did. I mean, this is the thing. When people talk about billionaires and this guy's too rich, you know, it's because he took the risks. He made the investments. Some of these people some people risked their lives. They bet their lives that they could make a fortune, and they did. And now these people are saying, oh, yes, but I have a right to what you have. I didn't bet anything. I didn't do any work. I haven't done anything except stand there with a T-shirt and my fist in the air, but I deserve this too. And the guy writes, he says, the, the deeper point of the Green New Deal is that any economic policy is a jobs policy. The oil and gas sector provides at least 1.4 million American jobs, more if you believe industry estimates, and depends on public subsidies and infrastructure. You might say that producing the disaster of global climate change has taken a lot of economic policy and produced a lot of jobs programs. Reversing direction will take the same. Since environmental policy can happen only through economic policy, there is no avoiding decisions about what sorts of work there will be. Now, what he's saying here, and he does say this explicitly, is that since the market won't take care of the environment, and there's some, a certain truth to that. The government does have to do things to protect the environment because no part of the market system will necessarily do that. Since the government has to do something, these jobs are going to be government jobs, and if we're going to completely control the environment, which we obviously have the power to do, uh, it, I mean, it, just ask Alexandria occasional cortex, you know, she knows. Uh, and so we have the power. All the jobs are going to be government jobs. That's the dream. The dream is to replace private industry with socialism. This notion that because oil has to ship on roads and roads are paid for by the state, that somehow the state is subsidizing uh, the oil industry. That, that is nonsense. There are certain things that government does. Uh, very few, very few. Most of the things that government does in this country, it shouldn't do. And if it didn't do, they would work better. But the dream 
The dream is basically, it's Rousseauian primitivism. You know, you saw Avatar, uh, Dances with Wolves, Pocahontas, they're all the same movie, right? The civilized man comes to the natives, the primitive natives, and finds that their way of life is really the good way of life, and our way of life is rife with evil. That is the way that it works. And I always make fun of Avatar, because in Avatar, people ha all the primitive people have all the things that you only get through oil. They have things that fly because they have dragons, they have lights because their trees, their magical trees light up. They have an energy that comes from this clean tree, uh, endless energy. They treat their women as equals, which only happens in a technological society. You can't treat women as equals in a pre-technological -techno society because they keep getting pregnant on you. That's why. You know, you have to take care. If you're going to keep the tribe alive, you got to protect the women. You got to keep them, uh, you know, where you can see them and, and the men have to go out and fight. All of that stuff, that equality stuff, is all technological, and you need oil to do it. So it's just the dream of primitivism. And, you know, I went on Knowles' show and made this joke but that progressivism is primitivism. I mean, the, the people with tattoos all over their bodies, with rings in their noses, basically saying we've got to get rid of industry, we've got to get rid of oil, bring back the jungle, and then we'll really have progress because we'll all be running through the jungle with rings in our noses. You know, that's the kind of, that is what progressivism is. That's the dream, and that dream has been destroying things at least since the French Revolution. The dream of primitivism has been destroying another, another fantasy that, uh, that the left is selling us. You know, we are going to stay on and not uh, say goodbye to Facebook and YouTube, but please go over to dailywire.com and subscribe. It's a lousy 10 bucks a month, a lousy 100 bucks for the year, for which you also get the leftist tears tumbler. But you get so much. You get all our shows, Knowles, uh, Shapiro, Walsh, we're all here. You get to be in our mailbag. You get to ask questions at backstage and during the conversation. I think there's a Valentine's conversation. How come Knowles always gets the Valentine's conversation? That uh, they put a heart on the ad. I saw. I, I see what Knowles is doing, trying to trying to make himself out to be a romantic figure. To, uh, <laughs> never mind. <laughs> anyway, uh, you get all kinds of things uh, if you subscribe. It really is a good deal. But we're going to stay on because I want you to hear uh, an interview with Dr. Warren Farrell. He's the co-author of the book The Boy Crisis: Why Our Boys Are Struggling and What We Can Do About It. Uh, he's also written a number of other books, including award-winning international bestsellers: Why Men Are the Way They Are and The Myth of male power. Dr. Farrell, thank you for coming back. It's good to see you. I'm looking forward to talking with you. So you're talking now about this idea of toxic masculinity and what it has done to the romantic life uh, of young men, essentially. Now, I, I should tell the audience again, because if they don't remember you, that you started out as a feminist. Would, mm -hmm. would, do you still describe yourself <laughs> as a feminist? No, I'm afraid I don't. Um, you know, fe feminism is supposed to be about, you know, sort of having equal opportunities and expanding the opportunities for women. Of course, you know, I absolutely support that. The problem is that feminism has taken the world and, and framed it as men are the oppressors, women are the oppressed. And so they say things like hashtag me too, but hashtag me too has been a monologue. It needs to be a dialogue <clears throat> to say that you're in favor of love and the family and to not understand that you need to support um, men and women both talking with each other if you want to make any progress, not just one person speaking and somebody else saying hashtag, you know, believe women, um, but implicitly don't believe men if there's a disagreement uh, that really is not progressive that's regressive that's that is the essence of regressivism not hearing each other not being able to listen and so when i did the research for the boy crisis i found that you know boys all over the world um, that did not have fathers 
those were the boys uh, that did not have a lot of father involvement, that what I call dad-deprived boys. That's where the boy crisis resides. The boy crisis resides where dads do not reside. And I was finding that the feminist colleagues that I had, they were very resistant to my suggesting that fathers need to be involved with families because they wanted the freedom to win, for women to raise children by themselves. And they were, they were lobbying for when there's a divorce, mother knows best as to what to do with the children. Um, and so therefore they didn't want fathers to have equal rights. And I'm saying you're in favor of equal rights, but except when it doesn't uh, work in favor of, 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 of women because you want to hear what's best for, ch you don't want to hear what's best for the children. And I said, usually, the, you know, even back in the 70s when I was on the board of now, um, the, it, it was beginning to be evident that children did better uh, with, when they had significant amounts of father involvement. I had no idea until I did the research for the boy crisis that that was much more accurate than I felt. Um, children do worse in more than 70 different areas when they don't have a significant amount of father involvement. And, and when I started putting out that information, um, feminists and liberals just completely shut down um, to, to, to hearing that message. And that deeply disappointed me. You know, it's kind of a vicious cycle. You start out with women saying a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. Then they yeah. have uh, single mothers raising children. And then the boys turn out angry and, uh, and confused about how to treat women because they don't have a father in the house to demonstrate it. And then they say, well, these, these men are not fit uh, to be husbands. I mean, it's kind of a, it, it kind of is a self-sustaining system. It, it really is. And it's, um, we, we, we find that the boys who are, when we look at ISIS recruits, for example, almost every ISIS recruit, and by the way, including the smaller percentage of girls who are ISIS recruits, are dad-deprived boys and or dad-deprived girls. Look at the mass shootings. When I studied the mass shootings in preparation for the boy crisis, I found that more than 90% of the mass shooters were not only boys, but dad-deprived boys. We're arguing about all these reasons. Is it mental health? Is it access to guns? Is it um, family values? Is it too much TV? Is it too much electronics? Well, girls have the same access to the same guns, the same TV, the same family values, the same families, and they're not doing the shootings. And it isn't the average boy that's doing the shootings. It is almost always dad-deprived boys that are doing the shootings. And then you look at suicides. Those are almost all from dad-deprived boys as well. Then the opiate addicts and the opiate ep epidemic, that's almost also all dad-deprived mm -hmm. boys. And I started looking around and said, my goodness, I had no understanding. You know, I believed, I wrote a book years ago called Father and Child Reunion, so I did have some sense of the importance of fathers. I had no idea until I did the research for the boy crisis that this is global and it was much more potent than I thought. And so my, my, my attention went to what exactly is it that dads do that people need to understand and value in order to bring keep dads involved? And what can we do? You know, here we were throughout all of history, every generation had its war. And when we told men that they were really needed, men responded and were willing to die, to serve, to sacrifice. And you know, here we have all this stuff about toxic masculinity, my goodness, and male privilege. Is it male privilege to <laughs> sacrifice your life so somebody else will live? You know, this is really, it was you know, very challenging uh, from the perspective that this is all feminist think. And I'm thinking, this is all, this part of feminism is wrong. And so I, you know, 
know, it cost me maybe 30, 40 million dollars to channel to challenge this. But I really felt like, you know, maybe I can make a living saying what I think is really true, uh, you know, striking the right balance between the two. You know, you're talking about, of course, some of the worst results of uh, being fatherless. But let's go to the normal guy. I mean, it's Valentine's Day. You know, there's a kind of meme in American society that men are just uh, rascals who just want to go from woman to woman. And I think men uh, support that meme because they like we all like to think of ourselves as James Bond a little bit. But in fact, in real life, what most of the men I know want is somebody to be with them and maybe take care of them a little bit and give them inject a little feminine uh, gentleness into their lives. The ordinary guy hearing all this talk about toxic masculinity and Me Too, what what position does it put him in as a as a guy who wants to date and meet somebody? Men are, you know, I just do, I do couples communication workshops. I did one last weekend. Um, and um, I asked every man in the group, uh, would you be willing to, if, if you had to, if you knew your wife was going to die, she was in jeopardy, and you knew that you could save her 100% sure, and but you had a 50% chance of risking your own life, either dying yourself. Would you do it? Every and now this is private. You know, um, you know the people wrote down privately their wives and women friends that were there would never see their answers. Every single man in the group they had the choice of saying yes, I would die. I'm uncertain. No, I won't. Um, every single man in the group said yes, I would die, risk my life to save my wife. Uh, and in reality. When there's a divorce, men are 10 times as likely to commit suicide as women are. Men need love enormously. We work hard. We're willing to die. We're willing to take jobs like garbage collector, drive an Uber, um, do construction work jobs, all the hazardous jobs, be firefighters. All the jobs that are likely to kill people more are jobs that are 90 to 100 percent male jobs. No one who's talking about toxic masculinity is appreciating this type of sacrifice. The American Psychological Association is attacking traditional masculinity as if it was, it, you know, it's not that masculinity does not have its problems. Masculinity does have its problems. Let's look at those problems. There's a huge gap between heroic intelligence, which is training for a short life, being willing to be called a hero, dying on the battlefield, and health intelligence, which is um, emotional intelligence and physical health intelligence, which is training for a long life. Let's examine that gap between heroic intelligence and health intelligence for sure. But don't just condemn men for being toxic when in fact all their toxicities are as a result of being willing to sacrifice their life and deny their feelings in order to be willing to be a savior to, to you and a protector to you. That's the core um, understanding for men that is so important for women to have and understand, especially you, on Valentine's Day. You know, there's there's something else that uh, somebody was writing about this in the Wall Street Journal last week, that uh, one of the symptoms of, uh, of masculinity that the American Psychiatric Association was condemning was um, the male tendency towards self-reliance, which I thought was really amazing. Uh, the idea that you know, I, I think women are more conformist than men are. I think they tend to stick together. I think they tend to be affected by social mores more than men do. And if you are going to find a rebel, almost, uh, you know, 90% of the time at least, it's going to be a guy. If you do, don't have rebels, if you don't have originality, the society doesn't progress at all. You don't have any new ideas. Everybody just agrees. There's so many things about men that I, you know, that that I think are beneficial. But I, what I'm wondering is, let's say you're 16, you're 17, you're looking for a girl, you want to go out. 
what are, what are you guys experiencing at this point? Are they are they just living in terror or are they uh, actually fine? Is it is, is it an overstatement to say that dating and uh, romance has become a problem? Since the boy crisis came out, I receive about two emails a day, hundreds of emails of parents saying, my son is in seventh grade. He's learning that masculinity is toxic. Um, so he tr- so we he brings this home to us and we talk about why masculinity is much more complex than toxic and what the good parts are. So he goes and, and so he asks the teachers, you know, why is masculinity toxic? Part of what they say is men are stoic. Men deny their feelings. They don't they don't uh, speak up. So he goes in and he speaks up and then he's told he's mansplaining. <laughs> and he comes home and says, I don't get it. You know, and so now he gets, uh, I get um, uh, emails from parents whose children are in ninth and 10th grade. And he's, they say that, you know, my son is is learning. He, he sees on the one hand, you know, there's Gone with the Wind where, you know, Scarlett O'Hara's character is saying, no, no, no. Rhett, uh, you know, Rhett Butler's character is saying, yes, yes, yes. Um, he drags her up the stairs and the next scene is she's totally in bliss. And this is the female fantasy, the number one best selling movie of all times for females you have you know 50 shades of gay gray it's not actually 50 shades of gay it's, you know, it's, uh, that that women want it's you know it's and so on the one hand he's getting these messages as to what a female fantasy is on the other hand so he goes ahead and he takes risks but then he realizes that the law says that if he holds a man's a girl's hand in college this is the actual law in california it is in congress or the state senate or assembly in 26 other states the United States, that if your son is in college, he asks a girl out, she says yes, he reaches over to take her hand, um, she and without and takes her hand without her giving affirmative consent, that is, without her saying ahead of time, yes, you may take my hand, he is subject to being potentially accused of sexual harassment. So on the one hand, he's so fearful of, you know, of, of moving too quickly. And the and then when he is, when he exercises that caution, the girl or the woman says, you know, I really find you to be very sweet, but you're, but, and the, but the, <laughs> it goes around, but you know what, the, you know what follows very sweet. Sure, you yeah. know, we'd like to just be a friend. And would you introduce me to the quarterback? You know, <laughs> yeah, that type of thing. Yeah. And so it is really confusing. You know, um, President Trump said it's a scary time for young men. Well, I can verify that since the boy crisis came out, I'm getting hundreds, thousands of emails saying it's a scary time for my son. Here is the animus, the anger, the negativity my son is hearing about his future. He's hearing the future is female, you know, and or the and books are like the end of men are coming up. These are all sort of like the end of men. The future is female. This, you know, this anticipating the end of men is not an act, exactly an inspiration for our son's life journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dr. Um, Dr. Warren Farrell, the author of The Boy Crisis, Why Our Boys Are Struggling and What We Can Do About It. Thank you very much uh, for coming on. I hope you'll come back and we'll talk again. I'm absolutely a pleasure and look forward to it. Thanks a lot. Let me end with a final uh, Valentine's uh, reflection. One of my favorite uh, scenes in, in movies is the final scene of Blow Up. And 
it, it's not really a spoiler because it comes after the plot is resolved, and it's uh, it's a, almost a coda commentary on the on the plot. Uh, but in this in this story, it's about a photographer who is looking for the truth <coughs> about a murder that might have might might or might not have taken place. And at the end, he's taking a walk and and reflecting when a group of clowns come by, a group of young people dressed up like clowns, and they start playing tennis with an invisible ball. Uh, they hit the ball back and forth, and after a while, you start to hear the ball going. You know, the thock of a tennis uh, uh, racket hitting a ball. And then it rolls away. The imaginary ball rolls away. And they, they start pointing to the hero saying, pick up the ball, pick up the ball and throw the ball back. And the hero finally stoops down and picks up the invisible ball and he vanishes. That's the last frame of the film. He vanishes. <laughs> and the thing is, when you buy into the fantasies that are prevalent, you vanish into them, you disappear into them, and you lose your own life and the, the truth about yourself, you know? And, and that's what culture is like. And culture, people try and impose the culture on you. They tell you, oh, if you're not doing this, you're out of date. Uh, you're perpetrating an old injustice. Uh, you're violating some kind of morality that we have created in ourselves. And they're always telling you, conform, conform, conform. Be like us. Because if you're not like us, then you're an accusation against them. And when it comes to love, I think this is incredibly misleading and destructive in the current age. I think I look around and I see men afraid to be who they are. Just like the doctor was saying, I, I find that absolutely true. A afraid to express themselves as strong, as confident, as self-reliant, and as non-conformist. As a person who says, you know what? I don't agree with this. I don't agree with this. I hear young men saying, oh, you know, I don't want to say that. I don't want to say this. I don't, you know, and, th and that is the opposite of manhood. I mean, manhood is the ability to be yourself and express yourself and to have integrity about who you really are. And I see women, I talked about this uh, yesterday, and I hope some of you will write in and talk to me about it. I see women dedicating themselves to lives that I am almost virtually certain are going to leave them unfulfilled and unhappy because that is what the society, that is the fantasy of the society around them, telling them what they should do. That's the life that a very few number of angry, lonely, bitter feminists want for them and therefore have to impose on them or otherwise they are an accusation against them. And I just think, you know, this is a moment. Our, our culture right now is psychopathic. Our culture right now is, is insane. And I think this is the moment where if you want love, if you want a happy life, you have to break away. If you want love, you have to consult your own desires. You have to consult your own personality. You have to have the courage to say, this is the life I am going to lead. And it's helpful if you can find people who will live that life with you. But you know, all the, uh, all the lies that are told in the news media, all the lies that are told by Hollywood, all the lies that are told, in the, told you in the university, not one of them, if you add them all together, all of those lies put together do not make up a single truth. The truth is in you. The truth is in the great works of, that have been written through the ages and that have lasted. Follow that. Follow that if you want to find love because that's where love lives. All right. This is it. It's the Clavenless Weekend. I'm so sorry to leave you here in this chaos and madness and confusion, but uh, go on while, while I'm gone. Please go on to anotherkingdombook.com and pre-order the book and get the, uh, the prequel and all the other goodies that come along with it. I would really appreciate it, and I think you will really appreciate it as well. If you make it through the weekend, and I'm giving you about a 50-50 chance, you can come back here on Monday and we will start the week again. I'm Andrew Claven. This is The Andrew Claven Show. The Andrew Clavin Show is produced by Robert Sterling. 
Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Senior producer, Jonathan Hay. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. And our technical producer is Austin Stevens. Edited by Adam Saievitz. Audio is mixed by Mike Cormina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Alvera. And our animations are by Cynthia Angul. Production assistant, Nick Sheehan. The Andrew Claven Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2019. Today on The Ben Shapiro Show, former acting FBI director Andrew McCabe comes out with a stunning admission. The media struggled to exonerate Ilhan Omar of anti-Semitism, and we mark one year since Parkland. Today on The Ben Shapiro Show. <laughs> 